0: From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Thomas Phillips. Over the past few weeks, we've been covering how ordinary Australians feel about the political candidates competing for their votes. We've been focusing on the constituency of Chisholm, one of the most marginal of all electorates. This week, we're flipping our focus to the election media coverage itself. We're bringing you a live panel discussion with some of the country's top editors about how the coverage has unfolded and how the public is responding. You'll hear from Gay Alcorn of The Age, Lenore Taylor of The Guardian, Tom Zahnmeyer of The National Indigenous Times, James Campbell of News Corp, and Ketchel of The Conversation. The panel is moderated by Associate Professor Andrew Dodd, the Director of the Centre for Advancing Journalism. We started by asking Gay Alcorn about how the public is judging the media's behaviour this election.
1: Uh, I, I think that there's no media, um, Andrew. I mean, it, the media is so diverse. I don't think the age is the same as the Herald Sun and there's a lot of new media too. So I think when we criticise the media or defend the media, it's a bit meanless. Um, there's very intense criticism of the mainstream media on Twitter, but I think that's distorted. Um, but I do think there's some criticism if we just want to talk about some of the mainstream media of certainly there's been criticism of gotcha questions. I think that's been pretty um, widespread. Exactly what a gotcha question is you can debate and argue about. Um, I think there's been um, criticism of um uh, bias in terms of the news call, uh, media, in particular, um, and that's I think that's fairly widespread criticism. But the media is the media. I do think we have to be careful. We're talking about which media and uh, whether it's more mainstream traditional media, whether it's newer media, whether it's um, commercial media. Um, I talked to our Channel Nine uh, news person today, and it, what they're doing on commercial media is quite different. So I think we have to be careful that we don't generalize too much.
2: Lenore,
3: would you agree with that assessment? Uh, Some of it. I mean, I think we need to start by looking at the task that we have and then how people might assess that task. And I think, like, I was in the press gallery for 30 years before I became um, editor of Guardian Australia, and the way that that we um, report on election campaigns has changed a lot over that time because the news cycle goes so much faster and because the electorate is less rusted on to major parties, so... You've got to spend a lot more time trying to look at um, individual seat contests. In this election, um, the independents in some seats are really complicating the picture and making it quite hard to predict. So we've sort of got to split our resources and find time to get out into seats and see what people are saying and thinking and look at those, you know, head-to-head contests in the marginal seats and then also um, find a way of getting into policy debates and getting the leaders to respond to policy questions. And personally, I think that's been the the toughest task in this election. We went on the the bus for a little bit at the beginning, and we're going to go on the buses again a little bit at the end. It's a real um, challenge to decide whether you allocate resources that way, because there's a lot of waiting around for a very short press conference every day. But that press conference is the only shot you've got to ask a question of the leaders. So I think that I mean, in brief, I think the task is getting harder. I think some of the uh, criticisms of the media, and I'm assuming we're going to go into them in more detail, are valid and some of them are probably a bit overblown. But I think that, but my sort of overall observation is that the task of properly um, reporting on an election campaign is becoming more difficult because the campaign bubble and the, that the hand-to-hand fighting in marginal seats is becoming more sort of dissociated from one another.
2: Tom, you're in Western Australia. How is the media being perceived on the street in WA?
3: Um,
4: Well, I think the biggest issue for us is a lot of the issues that are covering both here and it, it always seems very East Coast focused and that's not a new thing just because the election it's always been the case over here is there is this whether it's right or not, there's, there's this assumption that a lot of the news is based over east and we don't really get mm. to hear much about policies or platforms that are specifically related to Western Australia. Um, you know, I've got the same national issues where you have certain people who are more likely to, you know, certain voters who are more interested in criticising, say, the ABC or the Guardian, or we've got some others who are saying, oh, the News Corp, they're not being fair, but um, I don't think it's necessarily because of the election. It's just very much you know, turbocharged during the election cycle that we see these criticisms coming out more and more.
2: James uh, Gay has made the observation that News Corp is being singled out with criticism for bias during. Well, I
5: don't think it is, but I don't think we're being singled out. I think that there's a. I think what we're looking at at the moment is a, a change in the audience. That once upon a time, uh, there were limited media outlets that produced news in a newspaper format or a TV bulletin that, that ranked the, the information in the, in the way that the editors wanted it, and people more or less consumed it that way. We're now in a situation where most people, most of the time, if they don't want to engage with political stories, don't have to. And increasingly, they don't. And I talk to people who are doing market research, and the level of ignorance about what's going on is quite staggering. Um, I've known people who've been on pre-polls or or, or on the hustings, even in the last week, who've spoken to people in in the city of Melbourne who had no idea there was an election on. Now, that's one process that's happening. But at the same time, you've got a kind of development of a sort of politics fans who have hyper-partisan audiences that are super engaged uh, with the material that they want to engage with. So people who read politics now are not just people are more increasingly not just people who are being coming across politics in the other in the news feeds and things that they're otherwise might randomly engage with they're basically people who are looking for it now if you're looking for something like that you're far more alive to your own prejudices and your own expectations and if you're confronted with a news source which doesn't meet that with what you your expectations you're far more likely to get angry about it. And I think that explains what you see on Twitter. And it's not just a phenomenon of the left, it's a phenomenon of the right as well. And I think increasingly that, that, that and if you talk to journalists and editors, we have become increasingly frightened, I think, of the audience. The audience bites. They don't like what they're being told.
2: And should you have a response to that?
5: Um, Well, I think it's
6: true. I mean, the audience does bite if it doesn't like what it's being told. I guess from my point of view, I was sort of naively hoping that this election campaign could be a discussion about policy, about um, the challenges we face as a country and and what we might do next. Um, And I think one of the things that we've learned is that an election campaign is actually possibly the worst possible time to have a conversation about policy. Um, There was a great piece in The Monthly written by um, the editor, Nick Fyke, where he said, in politics, there's this concept called the Overton window, which is the concept of what it's actually possible to talk about. And he said if the Overton window is this wide normally, um, during an election campaign, it narrows. And the reason it narrows is because all of the political players have a vested interest in only talking about topics um, on which they think they have a political advantage, a tactical advantage that will help them get elected. So that means that everything else, Everything that's slightly difficult or complex or that isn't going to help you win the immediate election is off the agenda. Um, So what happens is you get this very narrow performative sort of um, political discourse, and the media has to deal with reporting that in a really hyperpartisan environment where everybody is looking at every single thing you say and saying, are you favouring one side or another? It's a very difficult job.
2: That's, of course, if the media chooses to be reactive rather than proactive. So... Okay, I'd like to ask you: In what ways have you been, at the age, proactive in covering policies and issues that the candidates and the parties themselves don't want to talk about?
1: Yes, I mean, I'd, I'd like to respond to Michel. I think he's right, but that's our job. Our job is to not just be narrowly focused on what the the, the narrow agenda that the uh, the political parties want us to focus on. And I totally agree with Lenore, too, that it's really, really challenging when really this election will be decided on um, uh, with, you know, 10, 15 seats on the ground. So I, th- I actually think the most innovative thing we've done, and it's been really successful, is to go on the ground in Chisholm, Goldstein, and now Kuyong with full-time reporters and ha- and a full-time kind of live blog, really, to try to tell the the national issues and 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 chinese voters was one of them the cost of living is another uh, how it affects people sort of on the ground and at a local level that's been the best thing we've done because it's just got us away from just having quick seat profiles here and there to go much deeper into into local issues and how they're coming off the local issues i do i i it is hard doing broader issues because they can just turn they they can just turn it the a very he said she said and this is the policy and this is the policy, but we have dug in and we're going to do more of it on the NDIS. I mean the the debate the first debate I was frustrated with the criticism over um, Morrison's supposed gaffe or misstep on the what what he said about um, his blessed blessed children without disability. I mean the real issue there is people being cu- um, cut from their their um, uh, benefits and whether or not the NDIS is sustainable. So it's our job to sort of go, you might want to talk about this, but here are some issues that are being forgotten about in this election. Um, and here are the, the real challenges facing the country, whether the parties want to talk about it or not. That is very challenging, but that actually is our job.
2: So Lenore, can you talk about the innovations that you've seen on the campaign, not necessarily from The Guardian, but from across the board where the media has led the discussion about policies that politicians themselves may not want to talk about?
3: Yeah, I think it has happened uh, at times. We've certainly tried very hard to get the discussion onto uh, not just housing costs but the rental crisis. A third of Australians rent their homes, rents have gone up by over 30%, particularly in regional areas, but also in urban areas. And and it's, you know, it's a massive part of the cost of living crisis and the parties don't really want to talk about it that much. Um, Housing costs as well are an issue that I think the media has managed to focus on. We've also tried to talk a lot about the NDIS, not just as a gotcha question, but also as an issue that's really impacting on people's lives and doing it from a human point of view, from case studies of people who have... Had their um, their plans arbitrarily cut, and what they've tried to do about it, and how difficult that's made their lives. Um, you know, I think there's been a lot of talk about uh, the debates, but I actually think the format of the Sky News debate, the first debate of the campaign, was actually really good. I thought that was a really good discussion, and that uh, that that um, model of having ordinary voters asking the questions, I thought it, I thought it worked really well, and actually, you know, got the um got the leaders talking about issues in a in an informative and calm and measured and interesting way. Um, but and I ironically think,
2: you know, on a subscription based TV network that wasn't itself open to free viewership.
3: Well it was well actually it was uh streamed on the sky site and also on news.com.au I believe I mean it's really its viewership wasn't as big as the what I thought but was it's also free it debate. is
5: also free to wear in regional areas. Yes
2: yeah, so city yeah. viewers on TV couldn't watch it.
3: No, you couldn't watch it on free-to-air TV. It was streamed. But I was talking about the format of the debate, and I thought the format of the debate worked really well.
2: Are there ways in which you've led the policy debate that politicians don't want to talk about?
5: Politicians don't want to talk about policy at all, generally, in my experience. I mean, this has been uh, been a long time since we've had a really large division of uh, over policy here. the Even on climate change, the differences between the two sides, you know, if you listen to what scientists say ought to be done, what climate activists would like to be done, uh, neither of them are anywhere near that. Uh, and if you think uh, climate change is a load of nonsense, as some people on way out there on the right also think, neither of them, you're not going to, you're going to be happy with either of them either. Um, there's no real substantive difference, you know, if you believe what the Labor Party is offering at this election on tax. Uh, They're not promising to reform the tax system in any major way. Um, We're having debates about other things. Um, And and this was a point that John Howard made in an interview, which I did with him on the weekend. He was asked, I asked him, you know, why do you think we're having the rise of these teal seats? And he said, "Um, because for a long, if you have a long period of single incumbent government." And there aren't any really big policy, politi- uh, politi- <clears throat> policy debates. Then, sort of other other things start to occupy the space.
2: Does this justify or does it explain this raft of gotcha questions that we're seeing, Tom? You know, these gotcha questions that we're getting now, coming from all quarters or several quarters of the media. Is that because there is so little being talked about in a policy sense that? The candidates, the parties are making themselves small targets.
4: I mean, I think just more in general, you know, outside of elections, too, you don't it's very hard to get straight answers out of politicians these days, you know, um, particularly, you know, for myself being in regional WA for the past 10 years, having an opportunity to be in front of a minister and ask them questions, they still, you know, a lot of them will be pretty cagey about providing answers. And outside of that, you know, you're very, it's can be quite hard to get them on the phone. So you end up with these very generic statements coming from paid media advisors. So in that space where it becomes hard to get questions, when you do have a minister in front of you and they're not answering questions, it can often, I guess, go down that path instead of just trying to get that gotcha question to get that headline. And to get, you know, get something out of these um, uh, I guess these doorstop interviews, which can otherwise become quite uh, dreary affairs.
5: What do you mean by can I just go back to you? What, what do you mean by a gotcha question? Are you are you talking about the 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 opening of this election, the Albanese's failure to answer the question about the unemployment rate and the RBA cash rate. Are you, are you, is that, that what you think? You, do you think that was a gotcha question?
2: That would meet almost any definition of a gotcha question. Not at think. all.
5: One hundred percent wrong.
2: It's a question that's designed to throw someone.
5: At no, not at all. It's a question that was, it, that was designed to elucidate something. If you're the Labor Party, the single biggest, the way you define economic success, is the unemployment rate. As long as I've been alive, they've talked about that, and. The, The cash rate, central bank cash rate, is the way in which, for the last 30-odd years, economists have controlled aggregate demand in the economy. If you're going to be the Prime Minister of Australia, it really is incumbent upon you to know those things, like that. The fact that he couldn't answer those questions shows that he hadn't really been thinking about them very much. It wasn't a gotcha question at all. It was a very, very reasonable question.
2: Misha, do you have a view on the gotcha questions and whether they've been justifiable in this campaign?
5: Um, look, I'm,
6: I'm going to sit on the fence on that because I think there's actually is an element of truth in what you're saying. And I think there's also an element of truth in the idea that it's performative. Um, and actually, i want to go back to what you were saying before about, um, James, about a lot of the electorate being very disengaged. I think that's really important to bear in mind. I mean, in Australia, we have compulsory voting. So what you are trying to do is not necessarily just appeal to your party base, you are trying to appeal to a very broad electorate that is disengaged. And I think one of the things that that does is it does actually mean that some of those sort of more reality TV performative type strategies are actually necessary to grab attention, like a, like a gotcha question. I mean, if you read Sean Kelly's book about Scott Morrison and his success in the last election campaign, it's extraordinarily how good he was At painting himself as a character in the media, using the very short grabs that are on the TV, news, the very short radio interviews, by hammering away at certain things. I support the sharks. I cook curries. I'm a daggy dad. And that is really important in terms of political marketing. The medium actually dictates the message. It dictates the way the politicians behave. And I think to some extent, the reality of a somewhat disengaged electorate and the way the media functions means that you're getting these gotcha questions. Now, to some extent, they're cheap shots, to some extent, they're performative, but also to some extent, they're, I think what James says is right, it actually is important. You do need to know the unemployment rate. You should know it. It is a key measure. Um, so I think that, you know, it's a bit of both. Gay, really. okay, is it okay
2: then when the Channel 9 reporter starts hectoring the opposition leader that they don't know what the six points are of the NDIS plan?
1: Ah, uh, <laughs> um to to, to I, I actually agree with both um Misha and James on the, the the first question about the unemployment rate. I do think, and I'm talking to Labor people, they knew that was a major blunder. So there's I guess there's gotcha questions and gotcha questions, and I understand what your definition is. Um, but I thought that by the end of the week, when that was still going on and and how we would recover, I found that boring. In terms of the NDIS. Um, I did think that was uh, pretty tedious, to be honest. And um, some people, I know some people in the media think that's legitimate—that someone should be able to reel off the six points. I don't think it is. Um, and look, and, and I, I thought you know Adam Vance saying Google it mate when he was asked his question was uh, one of the highlights of the of the early parts of the uh, um, of the campaign. So there are there are questions there are questions that you could be called gotcha that actually are very legitimate. And I do think the first one to Albanese was so. As this campaign's gone on, though, they're kind of easy, and it does seem like that you know the 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 journalist sometimes t- wants to become the story um, him or herself, and I and I um, I um I I don't find it very interesting. I mean, it's it sort of you go back to ninety three with John Hewson. Was that a gotcha question about the about the birthday cake? It wasn't really, because what it revealed was it was an incredibly complicated policy that he was that he was putting forward, and what payments were going to be on it. And it was actually a telling moment. So sometimes these little things can be very telling and important moments in a campaign. And just to talk policy and what the different issues are, um, are, as important as they are, sometimes those those little moments, like you know, Mark Latham shaking John Howard's hand, do cut through and do sort of change the change the narrative. So it's a little bit more complicated than all gotcha questions are bad.
3: Lenore, do you have a view? Yeah, I do. Um, I think we have to be quite careful about what we call gotcha questions because I agree with Gay that sometimes they're kind of legitimate questions. I I also think that the um, questions about the cash rate um, and the unemployment rate were legitimate questions to ask. And um, the questions that Albanese should have absolutely known the answer to. And I think it's a good thing when the press pack goes in hard and asks questions and demands answers, like that's what they're meant to do. The point at which I have a problem is when it appears like the questioning is being done for the purposes of the camera that is trained back in on the journalist and where the... Um, with a leader, is not being given an opportunity to try and answer the question properly. And I think the NDIS question did fall into that category. You know, I don't really care so much if Albanese can remember all the six points in order. I do care if he knows what the policy is. And we don't didn't, in that interaction, really get to know whether he knew what the policy was because he didn't get a chance to answer it because he was being asked what's the six points, what's the six points. So I I did have a problem with that one and it felt like the journalist was kind of really playing it for the cameras. But I think in in the broad, we have to be careful not to just be, uh, not to just allow the debate to say that any gotcha question is a bad thing because, you know, it is our job to, to really hold these leaders to account.
2: One of the great phenomenons of this campaign is the teal candidates and the teal seats. Uh, how do you think we're covering them? Do you think we're covering them in sufficient depth? Do you think we're covering the teal seats to the detriment of, other seats including safe seats Gay, do you have a
1: view uh yes i do look I, I kind of think that and we are covering two of the two of the seats we're covering in depth are teal seats one of the, f- the there's a fascinating thing going on in this campaign i think and which makes it so interesting i don't know how it's going to play out in the end which is which is that the, the liberal party and whether it really does abandon or or more likely the voters abandon it in these sort of more liberal um, Small liberal seats in sort of Melbourne and Sydney. I mean, if they if they if they lose a seat that you know Kuyong, which was Menzies' seat, that's a really significant historic thing. And at the same time, the other thing that's going on is 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 a corollary of that, which is is the, is the Liberal Party actually going to make real real ground in these suburban seats that have been more likely to vote for Labor? So we're seeing this election, which could I'm not saying it will. Have a, a significant realignment of our our politics. So, so the the, the teal the teal liberals play into that. Ha, ha, has this party moved too far to the right in terms of some viewers in these inner city seats? So they will will abandon that party. I think that's a significant issue. Some media have sneered at them. I think some media probably give them you know too much. Um, uh, positive coverage. It is absolutely within our remit to put them under scrutiny, um, to ask again about whether or not what they'll do in a hung parliament, um, to ask them more broadly about other policy issues, and, and I think we've done that reasonably well. I think in the last couple of weeks we need to increase the scrutiny on that because a, a hung parliament is a is a sort of a live issue.
2: James, I don't think anyone could accuse you of giving too much positive coverage to the teal candidates. In the news
5: called newspapers I'm sure that there are there are liberal candidates out there somewhere who probably feel we have No, I mean we've held them to account. I mean you could you could say that there hasn't been enough criticism of them in, in, in some other newspapers. some other newspapers have been running them in a fairly uncritical way.
2: I want to ask you about a couple of covers that uh, have run in recent newspapers, including one on the 1st of May where you profiled Josh Frydenberg in Kooyong mm. with an extraordinary front-page cover, Fight of My Life, mm-hmm. a double-page spread, I think, on pages mm-hmm. four and five. Yeah. Which was
5: basically so, a
2: hagiography you know. or an apologia for well, I don't, Josh well, not
5: No, I'm not sure that's right. I'm um, The Treasurer of the Commonwealth of Australia who... Uh, Has Menzies' seat was saying for the first time he was about to, he was in danger of going down. Do you not think that was newsworthy?
2: It's absolutely newsworthy. But in the coverage, surely you'd talk to both sides and give the other sides a fair interview. it,
5: it, It wasn't a profile of the seat of Keong, it was an interview with the treasurer about how he was going in his battle to hold his seat.
2: And have
0: you
5: run, have you
2: run a countervailing interview with Monique Ryan about how she's going in the same sort of favourable way? Monique with Ryan's not the Treasurer of the
5: Commonwealth of Australia. Monique Ryan could be elected and it would, she could sit there on the backbench till doomsday. It won't make a difference to the future of this country in a way that the loss of the Treasurer and the putative next leader of the Liberal Party will. It's sure. a bigger story. But surely
2: journalism is about telling all relevant sides to the story. No, it's about... Well, of course it it
5: is. Well, it's about choices, right? It's about what you think the most newsworthy and the most important angle is. On that occasion, an exclusive interview with the Treasurer, which he said for the first time, I think I'm in danger of losing, how is that not a front-page story?
2: It's obviously a front-page story, but in the treatment of the story, you would, I think...
5: You'd be, well, being, you'd be incumbent on you to find
2: some space for the other view to fit in no, no, the article.
5: That's a fundamental mishap. It's, it's not a read about the battle for Kuyong. It's an interview with the treasurer about his predicament. That's fundamentally different experience for the reader.
6: But I guess there is an implication, which is that um, if you're an independent candidate going up against the treasurer, by your logic, mm. you're going to get less coverage. You, there's actually not going to be any well any balance between. There those is, she's two not candidates. the only
5: independent running there. There, are people who have anointed her as an important, you know, as a person who needs who merits coverage. I'm not sure that she does. We might find out that the people who are backing her look because let's be honest, this is not some kind of peasants' revolt. These teal candidates are essentially an argument between two people groups of rich people. This is an intra elite fight that's going on there, the, about which the rest of Australia, were it not for the fact that the, the, the majority of the government is imperiled by it, would probably have very little interest. But I agree with what Gay was saying, and this is why this election is so interesting and potentially so very, very important, that we are looking for the first time at a, at a well, in the case of the Labor Party, the Labor Party is charting a course, a route to the lodge, that runs potentially through Higgins and Kuyong. Uh, if they don't get these seats themselves, they're, you can be absolutely certain that their camp followers who take them are going to vote to put Albanese in the lodge. There's no real mystery about that. Um, have we ever seen anything like that before? That's a, that's, that's a really, really... Weird route to victory for the for a party that's based on trade unionism, that's historically based on trade union. And mm-hmm. on the other side, we've got a liberal party, the party of business, that is staking its future. Whether you, whether it's this election or next election or the election down the track, the chances are that this is now a permanent cleavage. These these sorts of seats aren't going away. They're, they're this uh, this debate or this divisions, I suspect, is becoming a permanent one, as the Le- the Green-Labour split was. But we've never seen anything, we've never seen the sorts of seats that that, that, that Morrison is trying to win to get himself to government. They, they are, five minutes ago, we would have said they were total Labour heartless.
2: Okay, so let's get a view from the others. So what is the best way to cover this? Has the way that the Herald Sun and the other News Corp papers covered that seat on that instance been the way to cover it? Lenore, do you have a view on that particular form of coverage and the way they've done it?
3: Uh, Look, if we had done an interview with the Treasurer, we probably would have given it prominence also. But I think that the independents in these seats who lots of, well, the Treasurer was saying that he thought that the independent was in with a chance, polling is suggesting that they're in with a chance, I think they warrant um, scrutiny in their own right and coverage in their own right and a chance to say, uh, why they're doing what they're doing, and, and what they would do in the event of a hung parliament, because I do think I mean one thing where we can agree is that this is a really consequential election. That if they are in if they are in that position, then you know it really will make a difference. The, the, I do sort of take issue with the idea that they're sort of camp followers of Labour. I mean, if they have issues that they think are important. And they go into that, and they were to be in a position as a, of a hung parliament, and they went into that negotiation. It's in with it's within the gift of the Liberal Party, and there are and were certainly people in the Liberal Party who would argue that Scott Morrison could actually, you know, uh, enter that negotiation in a way that could cause them to uh, side with him. I mean, it's the, it's the Coalition's own choice if they don't want to enter into that negotiation and they don't want to give ground on the issues that the. That the independents are saying are important to them. The other thing I think it's important to remember is that it's not just the rich inner city ones. There are there are um great voices of movements in rural areas as well. I mean, it started in Indi. Um, there's a, a quite a strong campaign in Nichols. There's, you know, even the candidate in groom is in with a showing. So it's not just a debate between, you know, rich inner city. Uh, types, this is a movement that has started because people are disaffected with what the major parties are offering and want to affect change. And I think we it's incumbent upon us to look at it, scrutinise it, ask questions of it, but not to just dismiss it or view it through the prism of does it fit with one or other major party?
2: In fact, in some places, it's been described as sort of the death of democracy that this is happening,
3: when in fact, it's the very opposite.
2: It's the flourishing of grassroots
3: yeah, I would I would see it as potentially the opposite, but it's high stakes, right? Because if the um, if uh, Anthony Albanese gets a majority in his own right, but the Liberals have lost a lot of those seats, then the Liberal Party will have moved a long way to the right. Or alternatively, if Scott Morrison gets a majority in his own right, it will have backfired quite spectacularly on on the teal independence and what they're trying to achieve. So I think it's high stakes all round what's going on in this election campaign.
2: Yes, so that idea, the corollary, that there could be a hardening of the right as a result of moderates falling to teal candidates is an enormous issue, a potential issue. Is that something you're looking at in in the way you cover it?
1: Uh, Yes, I think we we have looked at that a a fair bit. Certainly, Chip LeGrand did, I think, a very good piece early on in their campaign. Um, I, I agree with Lenore and James, really, that this is a very consequential election um, and if you've got, and one thing we've got to do is that if you've got like a quarter or more of the population not voting for the major parties, and that seems to be increasing and it has been increasing, I do think sometimes there's an assumption that, oh, things are shifting and we, we it's our job to make sure we pick up those shifts and what they're about and not sort of assume, and I'm not saying the media does this, but parts of it do that, oh, they're an affront to what we've always known. This is, there's some real shifts going on, and we have to tease them out, which does mean holding the independent candidates to account, but also explaining how this has come about, why they may be disillusioned with the major parties, how the major parties are no longer serving them as well. Um, so, sorry, I've forgotten your question. But
2: um, well, I want to move on. Actually, I want to ask you. I want to ask you, Tom. Um, The coverage of Indigenous issues in this campaign, the major one that comes to mind is the uh, voice to parliament and the constitutional recognition of that Indigenous voice. Is that the major issue that you've been focusing on in the National Indigenous Times?
4: I mean, there's no doubt it's the big issue in the public sphere, but it's very much as well. Um, I guess a policy that's been pushed by, led by um, leaders in the indigenous community and people who are politically savvy. So you're like your politically engaged youths, your land council leaders, um, and you know, all those kind of people who already know policy and understand it. But if you go back into the communities, I guess while the voice, to parliament, the referendum, the Macarata um, Commission are all important. Um, I think you find a lot that is very much the same kind of issues that wider Australia faces, albeit through a different lens. So you're talking about housing, which is a big issue for everyone, only in this instance, it's more about overcrowded housing and the kind of health and economic complications that follow from that. If you go to, say, Halls Creek in the Kimberley, they'll all be talking about youth justice and the need for on-country solutions. And yes, some might say that's a state issue, but when this is happening, this massive issue with youth crime is happening all across Outback Australia, it really does become a federal problem. And that's another thing that yeah, we are hearing about a lot. Uh, deaths in custody is a major one, which we're not really seeing addressed much at all on the policy front from national stage. I think Labor's mentioned a few minor things, but um, you know, not, not, not near as much talk about that as what there perhaps is in the wider community. Um, native title and um, how is the mining and resources industry uh, works alongside uh, traditional owners in the Pilbara is another huge one. So, you know, to try and say that there's this one policy that is, you know, front and centre of everyone's mind in the Indigenous communities uh, is probably doing it quite an injustice because like the rest of us, there are a lot of different issues in a lot of different areas.
5: Can I make a point? This is, an and I, the one thing I think that we haven't, the media, all of us have been a bit remiss reporting, is that this is the first federal election in which the indigenous vote is not only possible, but reasonably likely to swing the outcome. Uh, the government is desperately trying to win Linari off the Labor Party. Warren Snowden's retired. Uh, they are regarded as in with the show. One of the reasons I suspect it's not being reported is because it's very, very difficult to work out what's going on. Uh, Obviously, there are a lot of remote community votes out there and you basically can't poll them. Um, Morrison has been to the Territory. Uh, Labor people have been, uh, not Albanese because he was ill, but if you look at the number of aeroplanes that are going through the Territory at this election, it's much higher than than normal. Um, The Territory is, is really, really important and hence the Indigenous vote.
2: Misha, do you think it's getting enough attention?
5: No.
6: (laughs) In a word, no. I don't think there's been, in the overall sort of national discourse, um, anywhere near enough discussion of um, the voice to parliament um, of, um, you know, indigenous recognition of all those sort of policy issues. Um, And I think that's, again, one of the issues that we're talking about here is that we've only got the media um, and we've only got what what we get from the media on which to base our decision. So I think going back to the discussion we had having before about the stories that, that James did, you know, his interview with the Treasurer, I think on one hand, as an analysis, it's absolutely correct. I mean, there's something hugely significant going on you want to hear from the Treasurer. On another, I think in a major daily newspaper in Melbourne, where you've got three photos, the family images, why you should vote for me, there can be a perception that does spill over into something that actually is the type of thing that potentially could make a difference because presentation of yourself, presentation of your family. I mean, that interview that Scott Morrison gave with 60 Minutes, which I thought was reprehensible journalism, like it was such an extraordinarily soft interview. He was not interrogated in any way. It was a PR puff piece. I thought it was negligent, journalistically negligent to not challenge him. And I think in, in a similar way, if you give interviews to political public figures and you don't give them enough countervailing material or enough challenge, what that then does is it weakens the whole of the journalistic sort of structure. Because basically, what happens is then other people will go to other friendly outlets and you lose that sense of if you're going to win a space on the public platform, you've got to actually front up and be interrogated.
2: I'd like to come back to issues that have been ignored, including Indigenous issues that haven't been covered well. But you have talked about interviews with the Prime Minister and Puff Pieces. You followed up the following week after your um, story with Josh Frydenberg with a weekend, um, Herald Sun weekend magazine cover mm. with just that kind of interview with the Prime Minister. Two weeks earlier
5: there was Anthony Albanese, was on the cover with his girlfriend, new girlfriend, talking about their love, you're not holding that one at you.
2: That's not a puff piece.
5: I don't think so. It reads
2: no, as a puff piece.
5: Well, I don't think that, I think it's an explanation of the things that motivate him. Otherwise, I was actually very proud of that piece. I think it really, I think it, it got to the things that he's obsessed with, which is family. I don't think it's a puff piece at all.
2: Let's go back to some of the issues that we think have not been covered well. Um, Okay, what are the issues that you would point to in this campaign that
1: haven't got sufficient coverage, and what are you doing about it? Okay, I, I completely agree with what Tom said before. I mean, we've gone to our um, the, 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 the voice to Parliament is the is the kind of national issue. But we, I asked our. Indigenous uh, Affairs reporter Jack, um, what 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 are the big issues? And he said it's not really that. And and he's doing a piece for us at the moment on uh, on incarceration. Um, so th- again, that's on us. I mean, it, whether it's a health issue or an education issue, and I've got to say this is hard, but it's not just. Um, the issue that the parties want to talk about, aged care funding or whatever it is, it's what if our job is to say what what are actually the biggest big, biggest issues in health, education, and so on. So we're so I totally agree with with um, what Tom said there that the actual issues that matter on the ground are different. I do think we are I, there's a, there's a lot of issues I don't think we've done as well as I would like to. I think we've done some very very well. Um, I think education has been uh, neglected, and we're going to try to address that a bit. There hasn't been a lot of discussion on um, uh, whether it's university funding or even schools funding. Um, I think that, I mean, I think aged care, NDIS have been, I think, covered reasonably well. Um, We've had very little, obviously, on things like the arts, which often get sort of um, uh, underrepresented. There's also sort of issues that are they've they've discussed in a very sort of loud and and way, but actually what 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 can either the, the opposition or the, or the or the government whichever is in power, really do about cost of living? So there's cost of living discussions, but is it almost we need some reality checks on issues, I think, um that we don't always have? I mean, it really is it the government's fault on inflation or not? We get the noise on that, and it's our job. And I think we've done this reasonably well about sort of trying to say, okay, this is an issue that they all want to yell about but what what's what's the truth behind this issue, how, how difficult this issue actually is to um to deal with, like cost of living is one of them. Um, so they're the, they're the ones at top of mind.
2: Uh, Lenora, I want to ask you the same question. What, what are the issues you think have not been covered well and what's the Guardian doing about that?
3: Um, one issue I've, I'm finding a little frustrating is um, climate change. I mean, at least it's not being discussed in quite as um, stupid a way as it has been in previous campaigns. But there is this sort of sense in some of the coverage that, oh, look, it's sort of neutralised, you know, both parties, they've got like vaguely similar targets, it's not that different. In fact, their policies are are really quite different. The Labor Party has a sort of moderately inadequate target and some semblance of a policy to get there which still has some questions to be answered around it. The coalition has a totally inadequate policy uh, target and no real, no clarity of policy to get there at all. And I think if we allow it to be neutralised in this election campaign, we're really not doing our jobs. We really need to get to that debate. But the problem is that unless they're just taking sort of slight potshots about, you know, dodgy modelling about how much electricity prices may or may not go up, neither side really wants to talk about it. Um I agree with uh, Gay that education's not getting quite enough run or the run that it should do. and I feel like as much as uh the uh, increase in interest rates was a big issue, housing policy hasn't really been interrogated in the way that it po- probably should in that the offerings from both sides of policy of politics are a kind of a drop in the ocean compared with the um the, the, the housing crisis that we're facing. And getting at that, getting at the, the inadequacy of the policy and the fact that none of the big structural things are even on the table anymore, is difficult to do because, again, it's something that neither side really wants to talk about. I think really the the, the hardest policy issues to pursue are the ones that neither side really wants to make a point out of.
6: Are you sure. Yeah. Um. I was just going to mention. I um recently took my daughter out to Koolaroo to do her driver's license test. And I noticed there were these massive billboards up by United Australia Party saying that they're going to keep interest rates below 3%. Um, and I thought, well, how can you do that? I mean, the, the Hawke government, um, you know, created sort of independence of interest rates in the 1980s. This is not something a government can do. This, this billboard is a huge lie, and it's a huge lie for two reasons. Number one, the levers aren't there for the government to do a policy like that. Number two, a party like United Australia Party knows it's not going to form government. And that's not what it's about. Um, So we sent out somebody to take a photo of the billboard and got an economist to explain what levers the government has got at, at its disposal in terms of interest rates and what capacity it would have to actually guarantee interest rates. And I think that's one of the important roles for the media is actually where people say things off the top of their heads, you know, this, that, you know, which are very performative. They're meant to send certain signals. But actually, just interrogating—is that actually true? Can you actually do that? Is there any real prospect that that can actually happen? Um, you know, it's it's very important because otherwise, what you have is all this sort of hot air flowing around. You don't actually have any sort of tethering to the facts, and I think that's that sort of is the focus of, of what
5: you want to do.
2: Same question for you, Jones. What's what's not being covered, and what's what are your papers doing about it?
5: I think the issue with the NDIS that people aren't. Both sides aren't really talking about, and and we 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 struggle with this as well. Is if you talk in private to anybody uh, in politics, or Liberal and Labor, and you say you ask them the question, if you're starting from scratch, would you build the NDIS again, or like this? You don't get many takers. Um, we have built something that is now. Um, Spent. It's going to. It's costing more. It's, it's either is costing or soon to be costing more than Medicare. Uh, it's predicted to grow, um, like topsy. And there's no, um, nobody's really in charge of it. That's the other thing we don't talk about. If you, I think, if anybody wants to get a grip on the mess that is the NDIS, the best piece is in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, written by Andrew Charlton, who's now the candidate in. Um, uh in in paramount and if you want to talk about gotcha journalism the afr did a splash with uh, a rewrite of this piece and it made me go back and read it and i thought this is one of the uh, best argued most informed pieces and he he discusses the structural weaknesses of the what we have set up with the ndis and it's how difficult it is going to be to reform and you know The problem with these sorts of, with institutions like that, is it's very, very easy to find sad stories. I've had my, people have had their funding cut, people who can't get funding, people have had their, their, they've had, uh, there have been arbitrary changes to the way they're treated. Now, was there any real coverage in an an open-minded way from anybody in the media that I saw about the government's attempt to get, bring in, Independent assessments of people, uh, uh, something that died in the Senate. I didn't see that. Uh, the Labor Party, um, which I, th- in a very short-sighted way, in my opinion, given that they're going to be, chances are they're going, they're going to be the ones running this in about three weeks' time, uh, blocked the, the the government's attempt to try and put independent medical assessments on people. Um, we have a, I mean, a, the, the NDIS is. to turn into our NHS if we're not careful, something that no side of politics is prepared to do anything other than make motherhood statements about, and nobody can reform.
2: To, To wrap up things this evening, I'd like to ask each of you about the process that you'll now go through between now and election day of writing the editorials that you have the prerogative many of you are writing. Gay, I guess that job will fall to you at the age. You'll have to come down eventually and pick a winner or pick a side that you back at the age. How do you do that and what are you thinking?
1: Well, we actually just started started talking about that today. So, look, we we pride ourselves on um, uh, not being partisan, that we don't have a fixed view. We actually try to, we don't, we're not sort of, Always on one side of politics or another. Um, so we have a, uh, we will have a discussion with senior people about that, and we'll go. You know, I haven't done this before in this job, but go around the room and saying, "What do you think?" and "What are the issues on on both sides?" and we'll come to a decision. We'll probably do that at some point um, next week. But kind of, we, yeah, we 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 genuinely try to give impartial coverage, and I think we've done that extremely well in this election to be fair on on and um, on all sides of politics. Um, without an ideological agenda that's um, on on every issue, but, but yeah, it, it, it'll be a process of sitting sitting down with senior people and having a good chat about it and uh, and coming to a conclusion after that.
2: Lenore, does that job fall to you
3: in your role? It does fall to me. I've done it twice now, um, and I start with the issues that um, we think are the most important issues and most consequential issues, and how we think that the parties line up on those. Um, in the past, I haven't uh, actively advocated a vote for a particular party. I've sort of talked about the options that readers who shared an interest in the same issues as us might choose. Um, one part of this of the process for us is that, I will have a conversation with news conference so um, everybody in The Guardian can come to morning conference. It's not just for senior editors. And I will open it up for a conversation to hear what um, staff think. I'll discuss it with senior editors and then I'll uh, write it in a similar manner as I have the last two times. Do
2: you think this time around you'll back a party or you'll follow the same
3: formula? I'll follow the same formula. But I think the consequential issues that we've been discussing will have to come into it. Is it
2: so democratic at the uh, Herald Sun and the News Corp papers where everyone can come in and have a say, but ultimately the editor will make the call?
5: I've, I've written one, I wrote one, I've been involved in discussions about how we should go with, with, with elections. It's not, It's you know, I know you think it's just some kind of monolith, but that's, we land there after intense discussion.
2: I don't suppose you have this job, dear. No,
5: thankfully we don't actually have to come
6: out with a view. And I think in a way I think that's really valuable because it means that you can just focus on providing information so people can make up their own minds. I mean, there's a long tradition of newspapers doing editorials where they come out one way or the other, um, and there are arguments for and against it, and I can see the arguments for it, and to some extent I, I sort of respect the tradition where at the end of the reporting an editorial team will consult and say, okay, on balance, we think, on the evidence that we've been presented, this is the way that we go. Um, But I think also there is a real argument for putting the information out and letting your audience decide, and and that's the approach that we take.
2: Tom, does the National Indigenous Times have an editorial on election, Eve? Uh,
4: Well, we're a monthly paper, so we have actually already done that. Um, So we have tentatively backed Labor already because our next paper comes out after the election, and that was very much, yeah, although Based on um, the well, two things I guess the the position on the uh, voice to parliament on the referendum, where we've got you know clear divergence. There, Labor backing the policy, which is backed by a very large majority of Indigenous people survey, versus Liberals going their separate way and you know putting their own idea forward. And yeah, you know, the other big thing at the moment for us is you know, you look at the two campaign pages Labor has. The First Nations policy platform and the Liberals do not, um, you know, we have left it open. So, you know, give Ken White a chance to explain, A, why they won't be going to a referendum, why their version of the voice is the better option and give them a chance to explain their full First Nations platform. But, yeah, you know, at this stage, it is very much um, backing Labour.
0: You've been listening to The Yard. Uh... A massive thank you to Andrew Dodd and panellists Gay Alcorn, Lenore Taylor, Ketchell, Tom Zahnmire, and James Campbell. The Yarn is produced at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. I'm Thomas Phillips. See you next week.